0: Nick Lane is a professor of microbiology and a keen violinist. He talks to Michael Barclay about his work on evolution and his admiration for the wonders of nature and of civilization. Nick Lane is a scientist who peers down microscopes at incredibly
1: small cells in order to ask really big questions. How did life on Earth begin? Why is life the way it is? Why do we have sex? Why do we die? Nick is Professor of Evolutionary Biochemistry at University College London and the co-director of UCL's Centre for Life's Origins and Evolution. He's also the award-winning author of five books and his next one, Transformer: The Deep Chemistry of Life and Death is due out in May. When you were doing your PhD work, um, it wasn't just Janacek that you became fascinated by, because I think you were listening to Lead Belly, the early twentieth-century American folk and blues musician.
2: Well, I was uh, spending long days in the lab and then going back, crossing half of London back to Kennington, where I was living at the time, and. Um, I felt the strong need to kind of scour out my system, scour out the day, and and, um, I was going through a phase where I was listening to a a lot of blues, and I don't listen to much anymore uh, because my wife doesn't really like the blues, but I I used to love it, and... Again, it comes back to something to do with the emotional immediacy of it. There's also a philosophy behind it, and the the reason that I selected Lead Belly is there's an absolutely wonderful line in there, and I use it almost as a guide for life, which is, I'm Alabama bound if the train don't stop and turn around. And there's a hope, there's a joy, there's an optimism in going somewhere, in doing something, and a kind of a resignation to fate that, well, if, if, if it all goes to plan, that's what's going to happen. And if not, well, I'll shrug my shoulders and the train goes in the opposite direction, so be it. I, I think it's a very good way of thinking about life generally. Don't stop and turn around. I'm
1: Hoffman's I'm Alabala Bound in the wonderful 1940 recording by Leadbelly. Nick, we talked earlier about how life emerged on Earth 4 billion years ago. Do you think the same thing is likely to have happened on other planets?
2: Well, um... I think the likelihood of there being bacteria on other planets is quite high. Uh, it seems to me that you don't need much more than a wet, rocky planet, uh, or a moon even. Uh, there are moons in, in the solar system, like Enceladus, that seem to provide the right kind of conditions. But I would say we're thinking about bacteria. My own feeling as a as a scientist, and lots of scientists would disagree with this, is that the story of life on Earth itself, which suggests that it was a bit of an improbable event for complex life to arise means that it's you know it would be very surprising if there wasn't a complex life elsewhere in the universe but the chances of it being close enough in time and space for us to ever find it seems remote so i probably be proved wrong next year but it seems to me that we're unlikely to ever find complex life
1: But that makes the existence of uh, the work of Bach and the playing of someone like Milstein all the more extraordinary, doesn't it? That it was all possibly uh, as a result of chance.
2: I wouldn't like to think of it as chance. Evolution is not chance, but there are chance (laughs) events in it which can change the direction of things. And even human evolution, you know, if we just wind the clock back, you know, six million years or something, uh, there wasn't a hint of of humans, plenty of apes around. Apes are pretty sophisticated things. I I think we, (laughs) you know, we we have something which is wonderful and we're capable of utterly destroying it and not just destroying our own civilization but large parts of life. Life on Earth will survive, whatever we do. Fast forward five to ten million years and the planet will be fine again. But human civilization is a wonderful thing and somehow we have to find the way of agreeing with each other enough about what's important to save it. I think we really are in peril uh, at the moment and we, we, we must talk rationally to each other.
1: We're going to hear Farewell to Stromness" by Peter Maxwell Davis, which he composed in 1980 actually as a protest against a proposed uranium mine in the Orkneys. Mm.
2: Uh, I've been a couple of times to the Orkney Islands. The first time I went, I went to climb. I went to try and climb the Old Man of Hoy. I went back some years later uh, with the band and we went into Stromness and we went into a pub and asked if we could play. And they said, uh, yes, of course. And, and, and so we, we settled down in the corner and half the pub emptied out. And we thought, gosh, are we are we that bad? <laughs> and and then five minutes later, ten minutes later, uh, people kept coming back in in small groups Clutching Instruments, Uh, we had just triggered a a, a session for half the island, I think. Uh, Everybody joined in, and and it's one of the most musical places that I've Mm. ever been. It's full of music. Um, Maxwell Davis lived in the Orkney Islands for some years. This piece that I selected, Farewell to Stromness, has the feeling of... Immutability about it, even though it was almost written as a protest piece, there's something deep in the folk roots about this. It's grown out of the Orkney Islands, and he said as much himself that a lot of people don't know that he wrote it, that they simply hear it and assume that it's somehow come from the people, and it, it does have this wonderful quality to it that it's timeless.
1: It's the greatest tribute, really, isn't it, that uh, something sounds as though it's sprung from the earth. Many Generations back. Well, uh, Nick Lane, as we hear Peter Maxwell Davis play his own farewell to Stromness, it is sadly time to say farewell to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: To Maxwell Davis playing farewell to strongness. Alan Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God Spots, and today he describes dynamic Christians.
3: Did you know, did you know that when the Bible speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit, or calls the Spirit the Spirit of Power? Did you know that the Greek word used for power is it's the same one that gives us the word dynamite? So there you are, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of dynamite. Now, I know you all realised that the last time you went into church. You looked around at all these little old ladies sitting there and you said, Is it Superman? Is it Arnold Schwarzenegger? No, it's a dynamic Christian! Well, tell me this. Is it easier to raise your fist and thump someone who's hurt you, or to keep it in your pocket? Is it easier to forgive someone, or to carry a grudge for years? Is it easier to help someone, or to just walk past and ignore them? So, Christians, eh? A bunch of meek and mild wimps, then? I think not. Excessive blessings to you. the
0: Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today, we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 102. It's followed by Eric Liu playing
4: Franz Schubert's Impromptu. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto Thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch, and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread, and mingled my drink with weeping, because of thine indignation and thy wrath. For thou hast lifted me up, and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure for ever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favour her, yea, the set time, is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favour the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute, and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee.
0: Regentus has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he looks at the problems Moses faced when trying to meet the demands of the people of Israel.
3: Some people just like to complain and even if they get more than they asked for, it's never enough. I, Moses, am only a man. They asked for water so God provided it. They asked for meat, and he sent quails, and as a bonus sent bread every day from the sky, and not stale bread. It had the flavor of honey and coriander seed. You'd think our people would have faith in our God who did this, but they just don't get it. We journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Rafidim. We couldn't have gone further as the night was closing in, and this place was well sheltered, but again there was no water. We were only going to night stop there, but soon a delegation arrived at our tents, demanding that we give them water. I responded to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But they started to accuse us of trying to kill them in this desert. So I went before the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they're going to stone me. The Lord answered me thus, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on this rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. I did as the Lord said, and water came out of the rock. I named the place Masa, meaning to test, and Meribah, which means to quarrel. Their constant complaining was beginning to wear me out. As we were going to set off from Rephidim, we saw an army of Amalekites preparing to attack us, so I chose Joshua to assemble the people who were able to fight. I instructed them thus, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua, Aaron, Hur, and I went to a high hill to direct the battle. Every time I signaled with my hand up, Our warriors prevailed, but when my hand went down, the Amalekites prevailed. The problem was I couldn't hold my hand up all the time, so Aaron and Hur made a mound of stones and propped up my arm every time it fell and held them for me. When the battle was won, God said to me, "'Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua.'" that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So I built an altar there and named it The Lord is My Banner. We would never have peace with the Amalekites. Soon after, word came to me that my father-in-law, Jethro, was coming to visit. I'll never forget how he took me in when I left Egypt the first time, and he gave me a home, and he gave me his firstborn daughter, Zipporah, to wed. "'When he arrived, we had a feast in his honour and rejoiced because of what the Lord had done for us, taking us out of Egypt. "'The next day I went out as usual, where I taught and judged the people, and it was a particularly busy one. "'There was a dispute between tribes as to where the tents should go. "'Oh, another lost his lambs, and the neighbour apparently had them, you know, things of that nature. "'Oh, goodness, when I returned to the tent at night's time, I was exhausted.' And my father-in-law asked if he could have a word with me. He was watching how I governed the people and said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? I answered, The people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Well, he told me that what I was doing wasn't good, and that I would surely wear myself out, as well as the people who I was judging. He told me that the task was too heavy for me, and not to do it alone. He then gave me this advice. He said, I should be the people's representative before God, and bring the disputes to God, then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk, and the work they are to do, then... I should select able men who feared God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and place them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. He said that I should let them judge the people at all times, and every major dispute they will bring to me, but every minor dispute they themselves can judge. So it would be then easier for me, and they will bear the burden with me, that is, the men who I choose. If you do this thing and if god so commands you he said then you will be able to endure and these people also will have a more peaceful life well i learned three things that day first the one who tells you what you don't want to hear could be your greatest friend next you could be doing something good but it could have also a bad result because of how you're doing it and lastly just made sense to share the load and delegate authority to responsible men. So I did precisely what my father-in-law instructed, and I no longer felt so alone. Because as you know, some people just like to complain, and even if they get more than they asked for, it's never enough. But now I have help to bear the load. You know, I know that some people look upon in-laws as outlaws, <laughs> but not in this case. God bless my dear father-in-law. This comes from the book of Exodus chapter 17 and 18 in the Holy Bible.